We're starting a new sermon series today, and it's the topic of the integration of faith into our daily work. How much time would you imagine that the average American worker will spend in their jobs over the course of their lifetime? Say, how many hours will we spend at work? A whole lot. A hundred thousand hours we'll spend in our professions. But how many sermons have you heard that really delve into the nitty-gritty details of, of how we integrate faith in the two? Very few, right? Every once in a while, we'll come to a passage that says something about a good Protestant work ethic. But for the most part, we don't pay a lot of attention. And that strikes me as strange. We're effectively in church not paying attention to the area of our life we spend more time in than anything else other than eating and sleeping. So that's why I wanted to, to do this sermon series. Now, some of you know that originally we were going to bring Al Arisman, professor of business ethics at Seattle Pacific University, and to do a little mini-conference on faith and work. It was going to be based on his recent book where he patterns a Christian view of business around the biblical character Joseph. We were going to do that in August. But then we got our, the offer on the building, and that kind of scuttled those plans. But I thought, why not do that now? There's so many interesting questions to explore. For example, what does it mean to serve God in the marketplace? Does that primarily mean, do I serve God mostly through evangelistic efforts with my coworkers? Try to give a winsome expression of the faith. Try to help them meet Jesus. Or is it kind of through a, a cheerful and prayerful, hardworking attitude that we carry with us through the rest of the day? Or is it by taking jobs and making our labor such that it promotes social justice in the world? Or is there really no distinctly Christian way of doing our jobs? And effectively, we do the same kind of work as non-Christians, the, the best of non-Christian work, insofar as we try to be honest, we try to be diligent and produce a good product or service. What about the questions about uh, self-fulfillment in our jobs? I mean, is there any one of us who, who doesn't want to feel gratified by the work that we do? But is self-fulfillment a goal that we ought to pursue? On the other end of the spectrum, is it wrong to just be working for a paycheck? Is it wrong for me to just do this job to help put food on the table and provide for my family? Are, are both of those things right so I'm going to preach sermons that, uh, several sermons that deal with those initial issues. Then I want to preach a sermon that's directed to college students or high school students. How do you know what kind of work God is calling you to do? Or even if you're looking at changing jobs, how do you know what it is that God wants you to do in this world? Those of you who are, are in squarely in the marketplace... I want to do a sermon on business ethics. I want to do another sermon on retirement, rest, and leisure. 
Brian is going to preach a sermon on Reformation Day on how the Reformation completely revolutionized the church's 1,500 years of the way that they understood work and vocation. How did, how did that happen? What did the Reformation do? And then finally, I want to preach one or two sermons on biblical principles for specific fields. What can we mine from the scriptures that teach us about art, industry, medicine, law, education, entrepreneurship, whatever else I can come up with. But. So that's where we're going. That's where we're headed for the next couple of months. I, I want to make it robustly biblical, and I want it to be dialogical. If you will end up sending me emails and asking me questions, then I will either directly answer your question, or I'll try, when appropriate, to answer it in the sermons themselves. But today we're, we're in this introductory sermon on the goodness of work taken from Genesis chapter 1, where we read, In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, Let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. Let's get that to verse 26. Then God said, Let us make man in our image, in our likeness, and let them rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air, over the livestock, over all the earth, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish of the sea and the birds of the air and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Let me skip ahead to chapter 2, verse 2. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, he rested from, he rested from all his work. And God blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Because on it, God rested from all the work of creating that he had done. So that's a biblical account of the creations of the heavens and the earth. And you think back, did you ever take Western Civ 101? Can you remember reading of different creation stories? How ancient civilizations and cultures understood why there's anything and how the universe came into being. Well, one of those that you might have read was the Babylonian or the Babylonian Creation, Babylonian, yeah. <laughs> the Babylonian creation myth called uh, Enuma Elisha, and in it, it tells us how the Babylonians conceived of the world coming into existence. It was basically the product of one great battle among the Babylonian pantheon. The gods are at war, and at the end of the war, the great god Marduk emerges victorious. As a monument of his victory, he ends up splicing in half 
the, uh, the rival god who was fighting with Tiamat. And he takes her dismembered corpse, and from that he creates the heavens and the earth, which is kind of a gr gross way <laughs> of thinking about it. But that's how they said it. It was, the, it was a battle, and it was body parts, and you get the world. Then the, the gods said, well, you know, who, who's going to take care of this place? And this is a lot of territory to maintain. Who's going to keep up the joint? Marduk looks at his fellow rival or his fellow gods, and they all shrug their shoulders. Like, who me? Or, Not me. So Marduk says, I will create a lowly primitive creature called man. And man comes into existence basically to take care of the world so that the Babylonian gods can live a life of constant leisure. But we see something here so radically different, don't we? The very first thing the Bible says about anything, it says about work. The Bible describes the creation of the universe in terms of the voluntary, cheerful work of the Lord. And unlike the rival gods of the ancient Mesopotamian world, work is not somehow beneath him. God is the first worker. God takes the job voluntarily. The creation of the universe is described as a six-day work week. Now, is that not profound? The reason this world exists is somewhere in eternity past, we know that it was the Trinity talking amongst themselves. The Trinity said, I have a great idea. Why don't I build something? Why don't we create something together? I want to do something productive, is what the Father said to the Son, and the Son echoed back to the Father. I want to do something with my voice, which is effectively Genesis chapter 1, and I want to do something with my hands, which is effectively Genesis chapter 2. So God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit decided to embark on this, this work project. And it's just simply not the way that people think about things today. What is our culture's view of work? Don't we kind of see work as a necessary evil? I've even heard people say that the work is part of the curse, right? Uh, yeah, it helps to put food on the table, but man, I just... Hate Mondays, is what we say. And that was the way that the ancient Greeks and the ancient Romans thought about things as well. Aristotle, the great philosopher, he said the primary qualification for a genuinely worthwhile life is unemployment. <laughs> the idea being that you shouldn't work. You get somebody else to work for you. A life of constant leisure and a life of Cognitive thinking was that's the good life, and the good life doesn't involve you know, Monday through through Friday. Is that an idea that's trickled into American thinking today? How many songs in popular culture can you think of that that extol the virtues of the weekend? And we have whole phrases in our culture that I suspect if we went to Japan today, they wouldn't understand at all. 
Like, would a Japanese person understand TGIF? Would anybody in East Asia or Southeast Asia understand that quote, I'm working for the weekend? Uh, would anybody in the Eastern part of the world understand Jimmy Buffett, it's five o'clock somewhere? <laughs> but that is, in essence, what our culture says. You know, the, the three most popular days of the American week, and the very thing that Americans live for is Friday evening, Saturday, and Sunday. Because in essence, we believe that that's where the good life can be found. And if you grew up in the suburbs like me, you had that instilled in you at a very early age. Because kind of the essence of suburban life is that you live for the weekend. I mean, you, you work hard to play really hard. You, you go nonstop and camping and soccer, you know, all of it. You work hard to play hard. And as soon as Sunday comes to an end, then you're starting to count down the days till Friday comes back again. But isn't it profound that God describes the creation of the universe in terms of six days of work? Six-day work week? A six-day workplace. Ah! But don't you see that's not the product of capitalism? Like that, the Puritans didn't come up with a six-day work week. Big business and industry didn't come up with a six-day work week. That was not the product of the Industrial Revolution. The fact of the matter is, God didn't have to work. He didn't have to like, go into the office on Monday if he didn't want to. Or in the case of Genesis, he didn't have to go in on Sunday because that's when... The Hebrews at the time thought the work, the, the week began. But it was for the sheer joy of working that, that God decides to do this. Okay, a couple of highlights from Genesis chapter 1. No, number 1. Work is one of the few things that you and I can take in high doses without it killing us. It's one of the few things we can... If you try to... Let's say, and I've known people who tried to do this, drink six cans of Coke for every one glass of water. You're not going to be around here for very long. <laughs> you know, many things in our world don't operate on a six to one ratio, but work does. Now, you would think if, you, if we interviewed the average person, their wish would be that the ratio is reversed. Wouldn't it be nice? One day of work for six days of rest and leisure. And that's, that's kind of what we've been taught is the, the good life. But notice how God does it. He has a six to one ratio. Notice also that he doesn't even do it 50-50. It's not like three and a half on and three and a half off. I mean, what is he trying to tell us? He's trying to tell us that you can do a lot of this. And it, it's quite good for you. Now, I'm not suggesting that we have to be at our jobs six days a week. We know that there are a lot of, there's a lot of work to be done in mowing your lawn or I mean, getting a birthday party prepared for your kids. Is, that's work. There's, cleaning your house is a lot of work. And really what I think the Lord is telling us is that six days of productivity is what he desires. But God ordered things so that you, you need to take work in high doses, which leads me to number two. 
Here's the reason, Genesis chapter 1 gives us the reason why a good day's work feels so satisfying at day's end. Like when you, you worked really hard on Wednesday, you come to the end of the, of the, the day, and you kind of survey your day, and you say, ah, that was good. I got a lot accomplished. And you lay your head down on the pillow after a long day's work, and what ends up happening? You sleep well. Well, isn't that sort of what's going on in the creation days in Genesis chapter 1? Think about it. God creates, and then he steps back, he surveys his work, and what does he say at the end of each day? He says that he looked and saw that it was, he looked and saw that it was good. And there's a sense that then he lays his head down on the pillow and sleeps. That doesn't really work because, you know, the Hebrews, they start the day at 6 o'clock at, at night, and it ends at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the afternoon. That's why it always says in the Genesis, and it was evening and it was morning. So it was morning and it was evening. But the whole idea is, if you and I are created in the image of God, and God, at the end of each day, surveys what he does and says, ah, that was good. It's almost, it's almost like the goodness of the day's work is what helps you get up the very next day and go do it again. Then, number three, work is in our spiritual DNA. It's so hardwired into our spiritual DNA that when you and I are cut off from work, when we're cut off either due to injury, age, infirmity, or circumstance, when you and I are cut off from work, we suffer a tremendous inner loss. At this point, I would say, is, is what you discover if you've ever visited the hospital or visited the nursing home. What is the chief regret that people in nursing homes have about, about their lives? It's, it's that they, they have nothing productive to do anymore. I've got all this time on my hands and nothing, nothing to do with it. It's why, if you've ever seen a guy who worked... His, his whole life, and he gets to 64. His company is trying to push him out the door. They go ahead and accept early retirement. And then he, he ends up having to accept early retirement. How do guys do when they're kind of forced into retirement? I mean, they struggle with that because they, they've been cut off from something that was deeply meaningful for them to do. When you talk to people who come back from a three or four week vacation and you ask them, well, how's your time? Do you have a good time on vacation? Inevitably, they say, no, it was too long. It was disorienting to be away from my work and have so much time on my hands. Now, not all vacations are like that. But <laughs> and so this is, what, this is what Tim Keller says. He says, we don't simply need money from our work to survive. We need work from our work to survive. We need work itself to survive. Because you and I, are, again, are created in the image of God. And God was the first worker. God has wired into us as part of our, our being in his image, this, this, this important need that we have to work. I think 
it's my suspicion or hunch that one of the reasons men die so much earlier than women is because once they hit their retirement years, once they hit their 70s, they don't have anything to do anymore. She, oftentimes, what is she doing? She still usually has domestic activities. And she's grandmothering. She's loving being a grandmother. That takes a lot of time. She's knitting scarves for the, the needy. And what is he doing? He doesn't have it. He has no purpose in his life anymore. I mean, what did, he, he plays golf all the time. And we actually, have you ever been judgmental towards a person who's retired and spends all their time playing golf? I, have you ever stopped to think that maybe that was good for him? Have you ever stopped to think that maybe that was necessary for his survival? And at least he's able to do something. So, as I said, hardwired into our spiritual DNA. So the three points there were that, number one, um, work is one of the few things we can do with taking high doses without it killing us. Number two, the reason that a good day's work is so deeply satisfying is we're mimic- mimicking our creator in his creation days. And the number three, it's part of our spiritual DNA. All work is good. That's my first point. The big first point. Where I want to go next is fast forward to Genesis chapter 2. I want to make the case to you that all kinds of work is good. You and I don't really believe that. All kinds of work is good. Genesis chapter 2. Genesis shows the first human beings, Adam and Eve, working in paradise. Yes, paradise has jobs. Incidentally, the fact that paradise has jobs is probably a good indicator that we will be working in heaven because it's the second paradise. I'm sure there's plenty to do on a renewed um, earth, a resurrected earth. Think for a minute about what kind of jobs Adam and Eve engaged in in the garden. What type, types of work? Can we interact with this? What types of work did they do? So gardening, yeah. Mowing, edging. edging. (laughs) Uh, What was that one? You know, animaling. (laughs) Taking care of animals. Farming. Sleeping, somebody said. Um, Somebody over here said naming. So biological taxonomy. Farming. So is that was that cooking? Cooking? Surely there are construction projects that had to be done. Lifting, building, architecture. I think that the garden had a vast array of blue collar and white collar work in it. It had a vast array of manual work with your hands and mental work, thinking work, blue collar. Farming, digging, carrying things, construction, white collar. I mean, they walked with God in the cool of the, of the morning. That's a, that's a whole lot of theology. There's philosophy. There's, there's biological taxonomy, naming the animals. And then the one of them that we don't often pay attention to, there's artistry. Where's the very first poem and song in the Bible? 
It's when God creates Eve, and if you look at it, uh, immediately Adam just breaks into poetic song. So that's what we see in the first, the first place of, uh, the first created man, the first Adam. He comes in and he performs all types of jobs. Let's talk about the, who's the second Adam. That would be Jesus. What type of jobs and work and tasks did Jesus undertake? Well, we have the white-collar work, and we know that he was trained in the scriptures. He was a well-respected, well-regarded rabbi, probably conversant in several languages, probably conversant in the philosophy of their day. Um, but what is Jesus most known for job-wise? He's a carpenter. And that word has a broad range of meanings. Carpentry could mean that he was building furniture. Carpentry could also mean he was roofing houses. Jesus might have been tiling floors. He certainly would have been carrying tools, wood. And so again, what you see in the second Adam is this combination of blue-collar, white-collar, cognitive manual. What is Adam and Jesus teaching us? He's teaching us the Christian approach to work. All work is good work, as long as it's legitimate work. I mean, opening up a brothel is, is not legitimate work, but as so far as it is, is legitimate, all work has dignity. All work has inherent value. No work is degrading. No work is degrading. Can you imagine somebody walking up to Jesus and telling him to sweep the job site? At the end of the day, he's like, no, I don't sweep. <laughs> but as I said uh, before, you know, um, this is very different. It's a very different way of thinking than the ancients thought. The Greeks and the Romans believed that work was, by and large, demeaning. The Romans what, 40% of the Roman Empire were slaves. The slaves were the ones who did all of the manual labor in the, in the Roman Empire. You don't want to work. You want to employ a slave. If you have to work, though, what type of job in Greco-Roman society, what kind of work would you want to have? Government work. <laughs> what? Teaching, maybe? The common denominator being thinking work, knowledge work. You get a knowledge class job. You pick a profession which utilizes your mind rather than your body. This is especially true with the Greeks. They thought that cognitive work was far more noble, that physical work was beastly, manual labor is for animals, Always give priority to knowledge jobs because they are the more dignified jobs. And we're 2,000 years later and we're telling our kids the same things. I, you, you want your kids to go to college. You'll tour 25 different colleges and you would never be caught in a school of cosmetology. You'll spend thousands of dollars uh, doing college prep stuff, but you would never be caught dead in a truck driver school. I don't understand. Part of the reason is there is in our society a tremendous divide between the economics of knowledge jobs 
and manual service-related jobs. And you want your kids to make some good money and have financial stability, and you want them to go in, in that direction. But I think just as important as the money is, what it mostly amounts to is our society considers people who work manual or service industry-related jobs as inferior to those people who work knowledge class jobs. I would say that you likely consider people who work manual service-related jobs inferior to those who, who have knowledge jobs. You consider low-paying, low-status jobs as demeaning. You see, no, I don't. I'm very broad-minded, non-judgmental. Really? So you're going back for your 20-year high school reunion. What type of job would you be ashamed to tell them that when somebody asks you, so what do you do for a living? Bus tables. After 20 years, after high school? I'm a bellhop at a downtown high-rise. I work on a landscape maintenance crew. What job would even keep you from attending your 20-year high school reunion? What job would you be like embarrassed to post on your Facebook profile? My guess is that it's that type of job. What about this? What if your daughter comes home and says to you that she has fallen in love with a guy who works on an oil rig in North Dakota? Are you cool with that? Would, would, you, would you feel better if she came home and said, I'm in love with a nuclear physicist? I'm in love with a pet attorney. Why is that? Because not only, it's not simply economics, it's status. Our culture assigns tremendously different statuses to our professions. And with those statuses come these deep-seated value judgments that we make about people. You, when you are, are getting your Blimpy's sub there, and the guy, the 25-year-old, the 30-year-old guy is behind the glass making your sub, what value judgments do you make about his intelligence? What value judgments do you make about his work ethic? See, job status, I'm convinced, we have bought into our, our culture's view of it. Um, that's what it amounts to. We look down on the guy who flips burgers at Jack in the Box. We say that I, maybe we do this, we say, well, it's okay for him, but I would never be caught dead in that job. But really, where I want to press you to is this. If somebody could record your inner heart's dialogue and listen to you as you interact with people in their respective professions, if we could tape record all of the inner dialogue that's going on, would anybody, say, reach the reasonable conclusion that you worship a carpenter? Would anybody have any, any inkling that your God was a former carpenter? That your idea of how the human race came into being was 
through a guy who was a farmer. That your God planted a garden. It's one of the very first things that he ever, he ever did. You say, well, that's why Jesus, he had, to, he had no other option. Like, he had to come into the world incognito. I'm sure if he had a different setting, he would have done it in a, in a different way. No. You remember how the very first man was created? How did God create Adam in the garden? What did he do? He formed him from the, the dust. How do you, do you think that God just like snapped his fingers? Boom! Dust is, is mounting up in a column here. No, I think the image is that God like digs into the dirt with his hands and he piles up this column of mud and then he breathes life into it. And if I'm right, then that means that our God got dirty within six days of the creation of the universe. But would anybody who is tape recording your heart ever think that you believe that? The more I thought about this, the more I, I just, I realized that I am shaped by my culture. I have this problem. I don't want to buy into my culture's value judgments on others and their professions. What practical things can we do to resist this impulse? I know I'm kind of running late here, but what practical things can you do to resist this? Here's one idea that came to me. So last week I was preaching at a senior citizen's uh, home in, in Meridian. And our whole family goes every time I do this. And our custom is afterward, we go out for a big meal together, a big family meal. We end up going to Baja Fresh because Mexican food, you know my love for Mexican food. And there are two, there's like nobody in there except two Latino guys that are working behind the counter. And they have a plastic bowl on the, the counter by the, by the registers, scribble on it. And it's just scribbled tips. And I'm thinking to myself, dude, do you, really, do you think I should tip you just for making my food? And one of my big character flaws is I'm a cheapskate. I don't tip like I should. And it was just like, damn, lightning hit me. The Holy Spirit convicted me. And it was, I mean, Brad, you need to, not only do you need to tip these guys, but you need to just say, even silently in a prayer, thank you, I, I, I value your work. What you do is, is valuable, it's beneficial. I know that's, maybe that sounds a little cheesy, um, but, but that's one of the ways, I, I, putting the money in the tip jar was primarily about me working on my heart and, and not for those guys. I needed to be reminded that the work they do is beneficial. Another idea, uh, I heard the story of a guy who, a few years back, his wife was, they were coming home from vacation, and they're walking off the jetway, the airplane, and she just collapses. She passes out. They had no indicator that it was coming. She's out cold on the floor. So they rush her to the hospital, and they bring in a surgeon. And it turns out she has a tumor the size of a quarter at the base of her, her skull. Well, how are we going to deal with this? You doctors probably will recognize this, this technology. I suppose it's a relatively new technology, a gamma knife. Anybody? So they use this gamma knife on the tumor in outpatient surgery. She goes in one day, and she's at home, sleeping at home in, in the night, in the evening, and, and it entirely eradicates this tumor. So this guy afterward is reflecting and marveling on all the different occupations 
which had to facilitate the healing of his wife. Well, what would that include? The construction worker who built the building? The construction worker who mined the cement, right? The real estate agent who provided the lease for the doctor's office. The engineer who, the architect who designed the building. The engineer who designed the internal hardware for the gamma knife. But this guy was particularly drawn by the imaging software, which allowed them to pinpoint with absolute precision exactly where that tumor was. And the imaging software was critical. I think a gamma knife is actually not a knife. It's some type of ray beam, radiation beam. And in order to keep there being collateral damage to the rest of the cells, you've got to target it right on the, on the tumor. And he's thinking about the guy who made the imaging software, and he says this. He says, I am so glad that guy didn't decide to leave the software programming business and go serve the Lord full-time as a missionary. I'm so glad. I'm so glad that he didn't quit his industry to, quote-unquote, go into full-time ministry. Because really what he's saying, and we'll talk about it next week, is Luther taught that the doctrine of vocation, that, that we are the fingers of God to each other. I'm so glad for the HVAC specialists who designed the AC units to make the room comfortable, or the janitorial staff who, if they don't do their jobs well, the whole medical office shuts down. Do, do you, church, really believe that there are any menial jobs in God's eyes? I'm so glad somebody drives a st- street sweeper truck through the city streets of Boise. There'd be no civilization without street sweepers. There would be no strawberries in the local grocery store if we didn't have, you know, probably the migrant workers out there picking off. Would you take that job? Is there anybody here who has a job that they consider menial? I think the last thing I want to say is, is if you're in that situation, maybe you spend your days flipping burgers. Maybe you spend your days cleaning up food spills and baby poop. (laughs) If you feel like you are in a menial job, the Lord is pleased with you. And the Lord is pleased with the work that you do. In the world's eyes, your job has absolutely no dignity and no significance. But our world never understood the fact that our God is a worker from day one. And that no work is below our God or below God's Son. He's not ashamed to dig in the dirt. He's not ashamed to roof a house. And he's not ashamed of you, his child, who's working in a place that is difficult for you to work right now. Amen.